Put down your pens, put down your pencils, step away from the keyboards, and settle in for this week's episode of the Writer's Block. First and foremost, allow me to thank Low Tide Kava Bar for the kava that I drink on this show. Also, I'd like to thank Muddied Waters Media for allowing me to do this episode today, and Don and Sally Wright for giving birth to me, because it's really the best way that I can pay you back for bringing me into this world. I would wel- like to welcome on my guest, Miss Rebecca Bidlack, the Executive Director of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's a, we've picked the line of work with the Coalition that no one seems to care about right now, but maybe after, uh, after last night we can talk about how we can find our center again. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you have had quite a wonderful resume. You went to school at the University of West Florida. Yes, through grad school. Yeah. Well, you studied pre-law there, and then you got your master's in poli-sci? Political science and public administration. That's right. Excellent. Um, And while you were there, you were the Florida State co-chair of the Young Americans for Liberty? Yep. Okay. Great. I was very involved through college with college Republicans, YAL, all sorts of, you know, I was the the obnoxious kid who could be counted on to be in the middle of something. We also got pretty involved with campus carry um, because I was in... I can't remember at this point if I was in grad school or undergrad when Senator Evers had his campus carry bill. So that was a whole deal. I can talk about that or not. But, uh, yeah, we, we made the most of our time in college. Excellent. Yeah, that's uh, – I mean, Yale, Yale is one of my favorite organizations out there. A lot of great uh, liberty-minded kids coming from there, lots of liberty-minded um, adults who help out there. Uh and just the energy that is surrounding the group of people that are at Yale is – 
it's inspiring to say the absolute least. Um, yeah, it's a, it's really, I think a lot of people are ready to cede millennials to the left um, or to people who want bigger government in general. Um, I see that all the time. And whenever I can, I try to call it out because I think the millennial generation is, is primed to favor smaller government and freedom if we only do just a little bit of outreach. And so all it takes is people and, and groups like the ones we're talking about to just kind of step out and try to turn things in the right direction. Right. Exactly. And, you know, uh, I got a lot of great friends there. Um, Matt D'Alessio, uh, yeah. really like that guy. <clears throat> Cliff Maloney is pretty, is a good dude. Um, Kevin, uh, Kevin Klein is one of my good friends. Like a lot of really good people are coming out of, uh, Yale and I really, I can't wait to see what they do next. Like the win at the door campaign that they've got going on has been, you know, uh, seeding super results and everything that they've been doing over the last four years has been leading mm-hmm. up to something. And I, I really think it's going to turn out to be something amazingly great. Yeah. I think it shows the power of people just, you know, we have this idea that everything happens federally and that's the only thing that matters. Uh, the, the, the general coalition of people who want smaller government, but the fact is if we want wins along the way, and if we want to sort of make progress towards smaller government, you know, lower spending, less federal involvement, it actually is going to be more successful if we start from the bottom up in our communities and go from there. Um, or we can keep screaming, you know, in, into the wind in a lot of cases and get discouraged and give up. <laughs> right, exactly. I, uh, so I was a member of the Libertarian Party here in Florida um, for years. Uh, and one of the jokes that I always would say, because we referred to the Libertarian Party as a bottom-up organization, and I one time said, yeah, we're a bottom-up organization, which is why we always get screwed. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, well, it is it is interesting how, you know, in the States, there's so much going on that we don't, well, we can talk more about that, but we don't even, we don't even really focus on it, like, broadly as a as a movement of people who want smaller government than, uh, you know, than the establishment in both parties. We can just say that, and we don't focus on the opportunities that are happening in Florida, for instance. Oh, um, yeah. It's, it's very interesting that I think we're, we're turning toward that direction. Yes. We, we are quickly becoming the most free state in the nation. I think it's awesome. I think... There's so much opportunity to sort of be a test case for what happens when spending is constrained with when uh, when the assumption is that government shouldn't take the responsibility um, as opposed to assuming that they should. And that's that's what I say when people ask me to define my ideology. You know, I'm you can call me a constitutional conservative Republican if you want, uh, if you want to put it more you know, directly as you have to prove to me that the government should do something. And my assumption is starting out with assuming that they shouldn't, because I think free people can make better decisions than bureaucrats in most cases. Right. I, yes. Crazy idea. I, I know. I know. It's weird. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're telling me that I know better for myself than right? a bureaucrat does for me. That's so <laughs> strange. I can't believe that. <laughs> Which based on Crazy. what, based on conversations on Facebook, a lot of people actually believe the government knows better than them. Um, right. There are these, uh, these arguments that we don't even realize that again, we see this ground to when we did, discuss whether, you know, this law or that law should be tweaked one way or another, as opposed to questioning whether the government has a role in it at all. Right. So you ran for Congress back for in... state house. Oh, I was talking about 16. Yes, in 16, I ran for Congress with the open congressional seat in District 1. Right. Uh, it was an open seat for the first time in quite a while, and uh, I had just turned 25, which is the minimum age to run for Congress. And so, of course, my, my thought process as the you know, the aggressive homeschooler who's just used to jumping in and doing things was to jump, jump in and do it. And it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I believe that was the first time I started hearing hearing your name was back in 16. Um, and then when I started, when you were running for uh, Florida State House, 
this year, <clears throat> I started paying attention to your campaign. And I was like, okay, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to try to get her during the election because they're busy. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's obviously their disappointment with coming up just short in a, in a close, you know, contested race, but there is a lot to, to celebrate. Like the fact that I can go home in the afternoon and not immediately put on sneakers and go knocking doors, right. <laughs> talking to voters. But sometimes I just, I, man, I never knew how exhausting it is to walk around on pavement all day. Every day. Oh yeah. I would, for, we're, we, as we were discussing before, and, uh, I was out knocking doors for a candidate here locally uh, that yep. I believed in, and we we figured out the math on it. If you added up the total mileage of everybody that we had walking for him, we walked from here to Winnipeg. <laughs> That's amazing. I should go in and do some sort of tracking for that myself. I, it's a uh, man. It was just thousands and thousands. Yeah, I mean, and then you'd be in Winnipeg. So I don't know if you <laughs> or. Tucson, we figured out. It was Tucson, ah. Winnipeg. Like, we just kind of drew a line. Yeah, that's but, awesome. That's, well, and, you know, it won't always go exactly like we want it to. Like, obviously, Elephant of the Room, it did not in my race. But uh, there are certain things that you need to do to win. And you have to take, you know, these these very basic, uh, you know, framework things for, for conducting a successful campaign. And it is striking how many people do not do that, how candidates go go and run and oh i just i just don't like knocking doors well you shouldn't be running for office right you know there are certain things that you just have to do to to be successful and people who love small government need to learn how to do it right and uh, i don't remember who I, I was talking with somebody from yale and they said if a candidate's not willing to go and knock doors then we will not support them and you have to knock doors it's a you know it's becoming more and more of a known thing i think among um political scientists and observers and consultants that ground game does matter, um, you know, more so than I remember it being even back in the day. But it's still a, a barrier for a lot of people because it's weird. You know, you're going to someone's space and you're knocking on their door. And sometimes, particularly in my district uh, that I ran in, it can be very rural, very, uh, you know, a little intimidating. There, Man, so many private dirt roads I never knew were there, um, you know, like like in, in the northern end of the county, which is where I'm from. Right. Um, and yeah, it's it's hard. No one says it's going to be easy, um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of the baseline that you have to do as a candidate. Yeah. And, uh, I worked for back in 14, I worked for a candidate who wouldn't knock doors and mm. that was kind of my first experience working on a campaign. And he, yeah. he explained it to me, he explained it to me in a way that I kind of understood where he said, yeah, whenever I say that I'm running, people want to talk to me longer. So I don't get to cover as much ground as you guys can. And in my head, mm. that made sense at the time. Yeah. And nowadays I'd be like, man, if you're not going to do it, I'm not doing it. Why, why am I? Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. You should, uh, if you're a candidate, you should be the first one out and the last one to come in and, you know, at, at the end of the day, because if it, I think I, I firmly believe that work ethic will carry you through most things. And if you don't have that to begin with, that's why we have sort of these, these problems that we see uh, right. where people don't, don't want to do the hard work of legislating. You hear things federally, especially where people are, just uh, unwilling or unable to understand the complexities of things that they're voting on and all of the unintended consequences. Um, and that's, that's inexcusable. That's why we're in the situation that we're in with government, keep, you know, keeping on growing. Right. Um, yeah. And with, with the candidate that I was working for this time, he came up a little short, which it happens. Uh, it does. Well, and I believe my race was the third closest in the state. Yes. Um, and it was a lot of interesting dynamics, which, you know, that's neither here nor there, but it was, it was an interesting look at what, um, you know, if I were to tell someone similar situation or even myself back a year ago, 
do it. You know, the takeaway, a lot of, I'll, I'll say this, a lot of the things that happen in my race are why uh, young people, especially young women, don't want to run for office, um, but do it anyway. Uh, because if we keep, the, the less that, that you care about the, the ugliness of politics, the less that it matters. And that, you know, however you feel about national politics, the last couple of years have showed that pretty uh, pretty clearly that people are tired of people who care so much about things that matter uh, very little to their lives. People care about, um, you know, regular Americans care about, are my taxes going to be low? Is government going to be involved in the day-to-day decisions of, you know, running my business? Do I feel safe? And do I, you know, do I have the ability to live without bureaucrats getting in the way? They do not care about all the things that the the political chattering classes twist themselves into knots about. And I think that's why we've seen, um, you know, the Trump phenomenon is, is I think, largely driven by people ready for someone who who stands on, you know, what they're going to do and doesn't care as much. Right. They value in not caring as much. Right. Uh, a lot of uh, the way that I the way that I've kind of deciphered the Trump phenomenon is Trump says whatever he is thinking. Yes. And people love it. People love it. And then he. For the most part, he attempts to do it. He may not give it his all, but he at least—I won't even say he gives it the college try. But you know, he—he he at least makes it appear as though he's going to attempt to do it. And then it's like, oh no, that didn't work. And then he blows. Well, and for as long as I can remember, and I haven't—you know—I've been around less time than a lot of a, a lot of people. We've had these sort of focus grouped, uh, prepackaged candidates for every race ever, and people can can see right through that. Um, and I think there's. There's just so much value in um, whether we're talking about the president or, or other candidates and, and being less of that, less of the like prepackaged politics. Yes, which we do have a ton of prepackaged pol- politicians. I will say that every every race that was super close on Tuesday, uh, even those that are still we're recording this on Wednesday for anybody. This isn't live, uh, but for even the races that are still going on right now. They aren't yeah. really your prepackaged politicians that are involved. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we saw that up and down the up and down the ballot in in Florida. That the people that were supposed to win um, largely didn't. And I think part of it is that we've we we have these assumptions that we we believe without really questioning them. So um, it's always been an assumption that if we bring more people in, we we bring you know low propensity voters in to vote that they're going to support the prepackaged you know, moderate set of ideas that the, that the chattering class accepts. Um, that was not the case in the Democratic primary where uh, Graham was up in internal and external polling until the last day, and then a bunch of voters came in and pushed Gillum in. Yep. Um, and that was certainly not the case in the Republican side where it was supposed to be a certain way, um, and then turnout drove it another way. Um, and I mean, I think that's very powerful, but it makes people work more than than potentially they, they had in the past in the sense that you have to make the case and not just to this very... A very narrow set of ideas. Um, whether you know whether that's scary on one side is, I think I would argue that it is that we came so close to electing a, basically a socialist. But <laughs> what we need to deal with is that the uh, you know the the ideas that we assume are going to be um, benefited by bringing more people out. We have to make the case for them. Yep. So let, let's uh, take a minute and just focus on Florida real quick in the. Uh, the two big races. I, I was considering it three big races, but one of those is, was the one I was working on. So most, <laughs> most people won't know what that one is. So in the, uh, in the Senate race, we had Bill Nelson, who's been in an elected office for 43 years. And then, yep. you, then you had Governor Rick Scott running against him. And Rick Scott was, 
not really that popular here in Florida. But he was able to he was able to push the term limits thing. I think that the fact that he was so good at sticking to the message of term limits against a guy who's been in an elected office for 43 years, that was the yeah. thing that, depending on what happens in the recount, uh, that's the thing that pushed him to victory. Well, right. And obviously we've seen this over and over with Scott's races. Every race seems to come down to, to you know, about one point, and this one is less than one point. Um, but I mean, you said it, Nelson is the poster child for term limits. And so right. that that's not a partisan idea. People across the spectrum think there's something maybe a little wonky about someone being in office for longer than many of us have even been on the earth. Um, and so that's, that's I think, uh, you know, assuming that, that the recount holds, that's what we're going to look back and see as the, as the deciding point is the value of, of uh, you know, not having people who serve at lifetime appointments, if you will, by, by default. Right. And with a... Uh... With uh, Bill Nelson, he started in the Florida House in 1972 to 1979. Then he was in the House of Representatives from 1979 to 1991. Then he lost mm-hmm. his bid for governor uh, in 92. Uh, he lost in the primary. Then he took a few years off. Then he was elected to the insurance adjuster, I believe, in Tallahassee. I have to fact check that. See, that was probably before my time. <laughs> uh, that was in 1995. He was a uh, uh, moderately before my time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was elected to some bureaucratic position in a yeah in a Tallahassee, and then Senate in two thousand two, I believe. Yeah, two thousand two, and uh, he's been in the Senate ever since, up until yeah. maybe this year. Uh, well, yeah, well, and and I mean, Scott is controversial for certain things, like you mentioned across the state, but there's no question of the results in Florida from you know lower taxes, from constraining our. Uh, our expenditures that, I mean, Florida has consistently ranked one of the most economically free states. Right. And of course we know that economic freedom is correlated with personal freedom and should be. And if it's easier for people to keep their own money, it's easier for people to continue to, to build and add to the economy. Um, and so that's something that, again, there are very few things that we can uh, with any certainty predict, um, you know, this is definitely going to make a difference in the election. This definitely isn't. But uh, going back to my political science degree, um, one of the few ways I can use it, um, you know, the, the data does show that, generally speaking, you can use economic strength as a predictor. Um, and if people have more money in their wallet, they're going to be happy with the, with the leadership. Right. Which, which that is the number one thing that I think predicts, like, elections all, like, top, bottom to top. <clears throat> yeah, particularly uh, executive level, so president and governors. Right, and the only the only thing that I think could possibly, when it comes to the executive level, the only thing that I think could possibly change that is wartime. Yeah, well, and that's the other predictor, right? Is that is the level to which people feel safe right. uh, and feel that there is there is there's strength in the executive too. So that'll be very interesting, and and of course, I I would hope that at the at the federal level where we didn't hold uh, Congress which I don't think anyone was particularly surprised by, but I, I would hope it's sort of a gut check because I'll be honest, Republicans have showed themselves to have a lot of empty promises federally, yeah. um, at, least, at least on, on certain issues. And, you know, it's easy to point fingers at, uh, you know, specific people or, you know, Congress surely likes to point fingers at the president, but they have not given him uh, Obama, a plan for Obamacare, a plan for free market health care. There has not been, any attempt to, to budget within any reasonable bounds. I mean, they're passing 
enormous budgets at the last minute and you either sign it or you shut down the government. And so that's, of course, not a situation where we can expect, you know, expect anything good. But they couldn't even do the, the bare minimum with the, the rescissions package that, that the administration sent over. It's obvious waste. It's, uh, it's unallocated funds. You know, it's the, it's the definition of waste, fraud and abuse. Um, and that couldn't even get through. Uh, you know, it's is it great that that in a lot of cases, some some really left wing people are, are now taking office? Of course not. Uh, but hopefully it'll be a gut check that it actually matters what you do when you have power. And like you said, that it's easy to point fingers and Congress constantly points them at uh, the president. And I, I actually haven't. I mean, I, I point at the president when I think he does something stupid, which is is kind of often. Um, but like Paul Ryan refusing to do anything. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like he has zero backbone uh, when it comes to the Democrats. Well, it seems like there was never a plan for, you know, Trump to actually win, which of course is because there was never a plan for Trump to actually win. <laughs> Most of these guys expected to be the loyal opposition for the next four to eight years under President Clinton. Uh, and then that didn't happen. And they realized they actually had to have courage of convictions and a lot of them did not. Right. So with Paul Ryan and uh, Cocaine Mitch, you have the issue of, you've got the issue. It never gets old. It never gets old. (laughs) Um, With both of them, they just seem, and while I will say that uh, Cocaine Mitch seems to have been growing a backbone, he and Lindsey Graham seem to have gotten a backbone at the exact same time. Uh, Yeah, it's it's weird, uh, strange bedfellows in in 2018, isn't it? It is very weird. When, when I'm cheering for Lindsey Graham because he's willing to stand up and say things that nobody else is, I, I can't understand what's happening. In well, again, case. there's value in, in speaking your mind and, and not being constrained by the box that everyone wants to put you in. Right, which, which you're seeing more and more of these days, and I think Trump is the reason for that because he just said— I think it's healthy to have that sort of, um, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, freedom or, or, uh, or, or bravery to sort of not— fall into the box um, and not fall into the, um, like, again, the, the prepackaged politics that doesn't really do much of anything for anybody. Um, so maybe with, with, you know, narrowly losing the house, it could be a, a gut check that, okay, but the next step is to do some things, right. um, you know, actually have a plan and hold the line. If, if we can't have a coherent healthcare policy, for instance, it's hard to blame people for, for trending away from free market healthcare to begin with. I think it's horrifying but there has been no coherent healthcare policy from, uh, you know, establishment Republicans, if you will, and that's that's a huge shame. I mean, it's a it's literally the one thing that we've been promising for the past eight years, and it just went out the window. And so it's uh, moments like this offer a chance, sort of, you know, a time for choosing uh, to go in more big government or to remember who we are and and stand up for the free market. And actually, with my day job, we get to see this a lot. So um, I don't know if you know we have the only site that tracks what every member of Congress is doing in terms of, of spending votes. So it's all public information that was there before. It's called spendingtracker.org. It's, it's easy to remember. Um, but what we did is we realized we're, um, you know, we are policy wonks. We do this every day. And it's almost impossible for us to know who's good and who's not, right? This was years ago when we were experimenting with different ways to internally track these people in their track records. And then the idea was, well, why don't we just do it publicly? And so we did. And, and obviously the takeaway is that there's more good than bad. But the other takeaway is that a lot of these horrible decisions thrive because there's no sunlight. And so to the extent that people know what's been going on, um, you know, which again, for the past years, uh, it hasn't been terrific. Um, 
it's I think it's it's an opportunity to sort of move in a better direction, hopefully. Right. So one of the things that I mean, the Democrats took control last night, the 30, 35 houses or 35 seats, I believe. I have to double check. I, I think so. I believe that's yeah, it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, My spreadsheet is open in another tab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, it's all on my iPad, the other iPad that I have, which is in the other room. Cause I was doing yeah. research and then I came <laughs> in to set up and I left it there. Um, but yeah, I, be- I believe it was 30, 35 seats that they picked up. Now what I'm concerned of is that they're going to start trying to get some form of Obamacare back into place. Well, one they're okay. They're going to go ahead with the subpoenas and they're going to go after Trump, uh, mm-hmm. for the Russian investigation. They're going to do all of that, that the Republican house wasn't willing to do. But on top of that, I think that they are going to attempt to get some form of Obamacare back into place. Now, we have most of it other than the mandate, pretty much. Right. Which (laughs) without the mandate, it kind of makes it kind of makes the rest of it useless because it, it, Mm. it, it won't be funded now. It's true. We don't have the force behind it. Right. So they're going to try to get something through. I'm afraid that they're going to put something up that Trump is going to like just enough. He's going to ask the Senate to vote for it. And then it's going to be a question on whether or not the Senate has the backbone to stand up to the Democrats in Congress and to Trump. Like, well, so I think, I think the president listens to his base. And so it, honestly, it comes down to whether the people, his base would, would be okay with something like that, which I don't think they would. The, the best, the best example of this I can think of is earmarks. So I, I don't know uh, if you were following it as, as closely as, you know, crazy people like us who follow this kind of stuff for a living. Um, but sometime last year, there was a decent push to, to bring back earmarks. Um, and it was, and the president never came out and said he supported it, but he sort of tossed around the idea publicly. And I was actually involved. We authored a you know, coalition letter of 30 something groups within 24 hours coming out and saying, no, no, we're not, uh, no earmarks. And, uh, and there was, there was not talk about it again. And so what, you know, that's what elected officials should do. They should listen to their base. Um, so continuing to mobilize on larger issues that are obviously more difficult, like health care, is going to be really, really important with divided government because the president listens to his base. Yeah. So with especially with this base and this president, I do think that the president listens to the base, but I think that the base also a lot of the base blindly listens to the president. That's the part that concerns me. So I think these ideas are not new, right? Like right. the people wanting to have smaller government, people wanting to cut spending and, ta- and, and, and the push for tax cuts uh, did not start in 2016. And so there, there are definitely interesting dynamics uh, more so now than there ever have been. But I, I'm always cautious of, of seeing anything as like, okay, this started in 2016 or even in, in 18 now moving on. Um, like there's always been a push for these ideas and in a sense, uh, you know, he's he's articulating some things that people have been talking about for quite some time. I'll give you that. so. What many 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 of the people who got nominated, uh, DeSantis is a great example. Everybody thought Adam Put- Putnam was going to win that. Mm-hmm. Pretty much up and down the board, it looked like Put- that was Putnam's race to lose. And then Trump comes in and endorses DeSantis. Right. And many well, of the, and many of the base just seemed to switch, and they're like, "Oh, well, if Trump wants him, let's vote for that guy." Which worked no, out. I'm not going to lie. It, that was certain. That was certainly part of it. But let's not. I mean, let's not also forget that, you know, Commissioner Putnam has had a, a long record of public service through many many iterations of, of Republican Party leadership and had a very long voting record that the base wasn't always happy with. I'll give you uh, that. Not start with Trump. 
Um, and and the the sort of grassroots support for DeSantis didn't start with Trump either. I mean, he's always been a as long as I can remember, been pretty popular among among the base. So it's part of it. But I think it's again, it's I personally think we should never try to put things in a box of of one person or one one event deciding it. I think that usually it phenomenon starts before we start paying attention. That's okay. I'll give I'll 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 actually concede I'll actually concede that to you because that's a valid point. Um, that just ever since Trump came down and he was stumping for DeSantis, that was when it just started to explode. Mm. And you definitely, you definitely started hearing it where, you know, DeSantis was just trying to get the governorship for his little checkbox for presidency. (laughs) We'll we'll see. I mean, he has a, he has a a hill to climb now. um, Because I mean, honest, just, just because someone has an R next to their name, I think, you know, that doesn't mean they necessarily share the conservative issues that uh, like, Congressman DeSantis does. And so it'll be, it's always sort of the next test moving on from a campaign is what does actual policymaking look like. Right. And by and large, a Florida House is going to be terrific. The Senate is always a little bit more of a challenge. Um, but, you know, if, if DeSantis can really work with, with Oliva to continue in, in the strong free market direction, that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be really cool. It will, it will be really cool. Close to electing a socialist. <laughs> What I, so what I will give DeSantis is that when he left uh, when he left Congress to run, he turned down uh, the pension. Mm-hmm. He turned down the pension while he was in there. He stayed in his he slept in his office. He didn't take yeah. the, he didn't take the housing, um, and he turned down the health care benefits that they get. Which all of those is what I sort of expect from a leader that I want. Mm-hmm. Every one of those. Um, so going into it, like, yes, there's things that I don't agree with DeSantis on. There's things I don't agree with every, like every politician I Mm -hmm. don't agree with a hundred percent. Uh, but at least with him, there were a few things I said, okay, I can support this guy without feeling absolutely awful about myself. Um, (laughs) and basically that's my, that's my baseline for voting for somebody nowadays. Yep. I don't hate myself (laughs) for voting for him. So Yeah. So, okay, I'll vote for that guy. Um, And, I mean, obviously with um, Gillum, with Andrew Gillum, which is funny. I used to have a boss named Charles Gillum who I disliked. So anytime (laughs) I'm talking about him, I want to say Charles. Uh, Bad, bad memories all around. Um, But with with Andrew Gillum, the fraud charges, the bribery charges, everything that's just going on in Tallahassee, the fact that he was this close scares me about Florida a little bit. Well, and and I'm going to be honest, I probably disagree with him on 99% of the right. thing. But we as Republicans discount figures like him at our peril because there is value in being inspirational. And I can tell you, I saw people who are motivated who had never been motivated before. Right. That's the reason he won the primary. That's the reason he came so close. Even like you mentioned, being a uniquely flawed candidate, he still managed to come within less than, you know, uh, less than a percentage point was it, or about a percentage? It was point? about a percentage point. I think it was like yeah. one point one. Or yeah, and and there's, I think Republicans often have a really dangerous penchant for for saying, "Well, this guy's crazy." I disagree with him. Both true, but if we totally discount the idea of having, um, you know, well spoken and inspirational advocates for our side, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Whether it comes to you know the next round of of presidential elections or future races and at different levels, you know, they, our ideas uh, matter to us. 
but they don't necessarily matter to the general public unless we can articulate them in a way that makes sense to people. Right. And that, and that makes sense. And I think that's, I think that's sort sort of what's happened here with DeSantis and uh, Gillum is the same thing that's happening in uh, I almost said Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same sort of it's the same sort of dynamic. You've got a flawed flawed yet inspirational candidate on the left, and then I actually don't know too much about the Republican candidate up there. I just kind of know I know I know much more about Stacey Abrams than I do about yeah him. and Kemp yeah yeah Kemp. Well, he's the Secretary of State, and there was. A- um, it was a very contested, uh, you know, Republican primary too. Right. And it was sort of the, the dynamics that people didn't really expect until it, it hit them uh, on both sides. Um, yeah. So we'll, we may not, it may be some time before we know what the actual outcome is of that one. Right. Since uh, it's, they're, they're going to be counting every absentee ballot. I think right now, about 10 minutes before we started this conversation, I believe he was 15,000 votes above runoff. Okay. And there's 77,000 absentee ballots out there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've been watching that one. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I've been watching that one all day long, especially after um, Tester won in Montana. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, people people who want the government to be smaller than it currently is, who want it to do less and you know, provide fewer things uh, for, for free than it currently does. We're always going to be sort of a reactionary um, like effort, if you will. Like it's, it's always going, in most cases, going to be don't do that instead of you should do this. And so um, by default, I think it's going to be a harder case to make. And it really does worry me if uh, seeing Republicans and it's, it's not, you know, not everyone by any means, but there's, there's often I've seen sort of a a tendency to discount entire demographics of people, whether it's young people or minorities, um, and just, well, uh, they're not ours. Um, yeah. So we're going to focus on on ours. Uh, that's that's extraordinarily dangerous, and I think really short-sighted because of the fact that, um, you know, in a lot of in a lot of areas, you have to you have to be able to to win over emerging demographics, so you're not going to keep winning. Um, and especially, particularly with young people, they're they're more inclined to be more pro-life, more free market if, if they're, if they're reached, um, you know, and at least not actively, uh, actively opposed. Right. If, and if you take a look at, so 2008 Obama, he energized the youth vote, which yeah. he got a ton of youth to go out and vote, which no, no candidate really had been able to do that before. Mm-hmm. Um, same with, I mean, I believe, I believe in 2008, the, uh, the black vote was the highest it had ever been, which not surprising. They, mm-hmm. you know, many people in this nation, including the black community, wanted to see the first African American president. Um, mm-hmm. So both of the both of these demographics were being touched by this one that in a way that McCain never could. So they, that way they were coming out. They were voting. You know, more more of them were voting, um, both the youth and the minority communities. We're voting more, which carried over into 12, because once you win, you want to continue. And the Republicans have yet to be able to push that base. And you can see that with uh, uh, Beto, Beto O'Rourke. Beto, yes. He he, he flipped so much of, like, Dallas County and and, um, suburban, like, uh, areas. It's it's remarkable that it was that close, And, and especially given there were some serious issues with his campaign from what I understand and right. still got that close. 
Yeah, I believe he had a uh, campaign finance violations. We we know about his DUI. There were a couple of other things on his record as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, and and he came out for an assault weapons, which I I hate that term, uh, ban in Texas. Um, just wild. Which is which is very strange, especially since he'd be running for a federal office. Yep. Can't really ban it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's, well, and again, it's one of those things that um, those of us who care, and you can disagree with me if you want, but those of us who care about individual liberty, smaller government, the right to keep and bear arms, we're in, there is, the, the era of the blue dog Democrats is, is largely over. Right. Um, it, it's an accepted norm on, on, the, on the left to favor single payer, to favor more, much more aggressive gun control and things like that. And so that's, again, it's just signs of, shifting to to the to the ends but it's 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 very it's meaningful because when we start seating these seats it's not necessarily going to be someone who has any sort of grounding in, in in common principles they uh they may be very very far left um which a lot of them are right and i mean andrew gillum was the same way here in florida which you mm-hmm. try to take away florida's guns i can't believe he came that close saying that and yeah, he, well, and the messaging was very aggressive all on, on the cabinet. I mean, I got so many targeted ads on, terribly targeted ads uh, on Facebook saying, you know, Matt Caldwell supports the right to keep and bear arms, vote against him. And it's like, thank you for reminding me why I voted for Matt. Right. Um, you know, but that it was it was an aggressive part of the messaging is what I'm saying. It's it's not, you know, it's not, it's no longer couched in the euphemisms. Uh, it is it is a, a foundational part of the messaging now. Right. And. After uh, the Parkland shooting at uh, Marjorie Stoneman and uh, Rick Scott's reaction to it, which a lot of Republicans didn't like, understandably, um, I I'm not a huge fan of it as well. But, no, I mean to be clear, it's gun control, and right. it should be passed. I mean, Republicans shouldn't support gun control, no. and particularly not disenfranchising huge portions of of uh, people and leaving eighteen to twenty year old eighteen to twenty year year old's completely vulnerable. Exactly. And should not be a thing that happened. And just, if they're willing to go in and shoot up a school, they're willing to get a gun illegally. <laughs> the, the striking thing about, and I could go on a tangent now, which, um, you, you know, gun control rants from me. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about all these cases are um, there is a string of failures from government at in every single one of these cases where the proper authorities were alerted that, People knew that this person under current law should not have weapons, that this, you know, over and over and over, the sheriff ignored, uh, ignored a string of things that happened. You know, the, the resource officer stayed outside like, at every level in many, many of these cases, if not all, government has failed. And the answer is to empower government further. It's it's baffling to me um, that, that that's, you know, something that's that's gone unchallenged. Yeah. And. Specifically with specifically with the uh, Parkland shooting case, <clears throat> he had forty five, I think forty five, forty seven, yeah, uh, government like police and FBI tips on him, and nothing was done before he went and did this. And well, and right, and it's I have yet to have someone explain to me in any sense of the word how how the the gun control bill that passed would have had anything to do with stopping the incident. From what I see of ha- of, w- of what happened, it, it would have happened because government failed. Right. Yeah, and that's how I feel about mo- like, most of these tragedies. When they happen, 
it has nothing to do with the gun itself. And stopping the person from being able to legally purchase the gun. Actually, many of these people don't even legally purchase them. They just end up acquiring yeah. them somehow, which is not in the legal realm. Um, yeah. But many of these times, it's either... There was a failure that they broke the law to get the gun. The government somehow failed in researching it and it still ends up happening. So banning the gun and keeping mm-hmm. people like you, like me, like 18 yeah. to 20 year olds, uh, unable to protect themselves, which is yeah. why gun control, obviously in my mind is not something we need to continue to push and go for, but we, instead we need to teach people how to use guns properly. We need to, uh, increase education we need to uh make it more accessible for people to be able to protect themselves and their homes right it's an it's an equalizer of force and once you start taking that away or saying that there are exceptions to being able to equalize force against your person uh it's it's a very dangerous road and there's a reason why there's a reason why we do not give an inch um i (laughs) it was one of the most frustrating experiences of my life watching floor debate on on the bill uh, because there were i don't think many people were paying attention to what Democrats were saying, or if they were, I didn't hear a whole lot about it, but there, I mean, I think it's, um, what's his, Guillermo Smith from Orlando, I think, right. stood up and said, this is the first step, that this is a baby step, we'll be back for more, I believe, was the phrase that was used, and, and I was sitting there like, this is why we don't give an inch, uh, because it's never enough, it's, it's, and it's, it's never going to stop. Right, and, you know, the, the obvious phrase of you give an inch, they take a foot, or you know you give a foot, they take a mile, whichever one you want to go with. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that is what they are trying to do with all of the gun control that they're pushing. Um, mm-hmm. they're, you're going to give them an inch. Okay, no 18 to 21-year-olds can own, uh, I believe it's right, uh, is it rifles or handguns? It's rifles, right? Uh, it was long guns. Long guns, okay. Uh, but not a right. Uh, with the uh, can't own long guns. And... Or can't, I, I believe it was, can't purchase long guns at a store. Right. Right. Well, and of course, then again, we set up this this whole situation, which I happen to think that this is something the left should be more sensitive to um, if, if they care about issues that, that they claim to do. What we're doing is we're, we're, we're creating a very privileged situation. So technically, yes, uh, you can shoot and own and, and whatever um, if you have a family member to help you, which, of course, that's close to the line of straw sales, which straw sales are already illegal. Um but again, you know, that that's going to be the answer when you say, what about the 20-year-old single mother who can't protect herself? And the answer is, you know, get someone to get you a gun. Well, a lot of times people who are in vulnerable situations are there because they have no support system, because they're already on the on the fringes of society, if you will. Um, and further pushing them there and further endangering them of, of getting more and more embroiled in the legal system, that's going to affect people, uh, people like that much quicker than it's going to affect normal middle-class Americans who just like me, who want to be able to protect ourselves. And it's, I believe viewing any, any law uh, by how it's going to affect you is only part of the picture. You should view it first by how it's going to affect the most vulnerable, vulnerable members of society. Uh, and, and gun control is just the perfect example of that. Right. And I mean, gun, gun control has always, in my mind, been one of, has always been one of the most classist and racist things that we could pass. If you look at that, there there are huge sentencing disparities. For instance, um, you know, by by race for gun crimes, you can you can look up the statistics. So again, it's it's about everyone's rights, and you should look at it uh, by how it's going to affect people who are the most vulnerable uh, first. I think because if not, you're 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 
you're advocating for a, for a bunch of people who are already in, in disadvantaged situations to, to risk jail time or worse. And I mean, if, if you take that and you spin it off into, you know, the war on drugs and uh, mandatory minimum sentencing and all that kind of stuff, you're already, you're already affecting this minority, these minority groups in this. And then you're also telling them, but you can't also protect yourself in other situations that these may be causing. So like, yeah. you're just <clears throat> perpetuating the cycle that's only keeping the minorities down as opposed to a, allowing themselves to be lifted up out of what situation they're in on their own. There's a great quote that's, and I'm going to ruin it, but it's something along, along the lines of government's great at breaking your legs, handing you a crutch and saying, if not for us, you wouldn't be able to walk. Right. Uh, what we see in, in a lot of the more vulnerable uh, communities around the country, and we're not just talking about race, but by class, by geography, um, that these problems are, are created and enhanced by big government and very few people uh, are making the effective case, at least until recently, that, that getting smaller government is the solution. Like, we don't believe in, in lower spending and lower taxes in, uh, you know, a, a small regulatory state and, and free market health care for the sake of believing it. Uh, if you do, you should do some more research. We believe be- in those things because it's the way to make people's lives better. Right. Like, talking about people's ability to work, to feed their families, to go to the hospital and not be broken by it. They, you know, these are, they're real problems and real solutions here. It's not just in the realm of the abstract. And as always, it's going to affect poor and uh, vulnerable communities first. I love, um, I think, uh, I'm certain it had to be somebody on the left. It had to be somebody on the left. Because every once in a while, they say something so brilliant that it makes me so happy. And I think they said, how close are we to GoFundMe being the number one healthcare provider in America? Yes. And I know that they said that making fun of the healthcare system. In my mind, though, I said, that's perfect. That's what we're looking for. That's voluntarism. That's uh, charitable uh, causes. That's people right, helping that's people out. People stepping up to help their neighbors. Exactly. And that it- right. And of course, things like that are band-aids. They're always going to be band-aids. There, there are hugely systemic issues with our healthcare system, especially in Florida, that, that we have to target. But uh, you tell me why the government solutions that are t- typically discussed are also band-aids, but being done with our money. And typically, anytime that it comes to the government solutions, it, you're right, it's going to be a Band-Aid. And it's going to, many times it's like a Band-Aid for a head wound where you need mm-hmm. stitches. A Band-Aid's not doing anything. Uh, but it's like, oh, look, we're just going to give you this Band-Aid because it's going to make you feel a little bit better. Um, and, and I think there, there has been, there has, that's one of the things that federally has been good or better than, better than average, at least recently, uh, right to try passing and some of the, the recent uh, legislation related to generic prescriptions uh, being allowed to talk about the, the prices. Right. Um, that's actually a pretty big step in the right direction because it addresses the underlying costs that, that keep driving things up. Again, it's not a Band-Aid paying for it at the other end. Uh, and that's something that there's still a lot more that can be done uh, with this issue specifically, but it's, it's, it's a tiny step in the right direction. That uh, not have happened under President Clinton, I can tell you that. No. Um, it wouldn't have happened under Obama either. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's that is, I think, for a lot of people, what what we're starting to see is that some of these um, non traditional ideas, right? Like ten years ago, the idea of, of right to try or the idea of of being able to inform you of generic costs or whatnot, um, those were not mainstream at all. And then they came from the bottom up, right to try specifically passed in all the states first. Um, 
because it was a problem. People identified it as a problem and, and they just said, okay, we'll do it. Um, and now we're seeing a little bit of action federally, which is really cool. That's a, that's a step in the right direction. It is. And I mean, so I don't know how, how much you know about like what I've done, um, but I've advocated for basically all natural medicines. Is the way I like mm-hmm. it. You know, uh, medical marijuana, I'm a huge fan of, even though I don't use it. Um, I actually don't use any of it. Right? Like, you, I, you believe someone should have a right to do something exactly. even though you personally don't do it? Right. I like, see. I prefer traditional medicine as opposed to the herbal. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't want to throw away 300, 400, 500 years of medical knowledge for, well, this stuff's been around forever. Um, I don't know. Uh, but you should have the right to try it. So, like, Kratom. Right. Uh, Kratom, if you know anything about Kratom, you're from Florida. Mm-hmm. You, you've probably heard of it. Uh, I have. Yeah. So, I mean, Kratom is a big one for me. I think that any, anytime they try to ban it, I, I fight it because that's just idiotic. Um, you know, medical marijuana, if you want to try different, you know, t- uh, what's it? Turmeric. People were talking about trying to take turmeric out. It's a spice. Don't take it out. Um, but people were trying talking about trying to get rid of that because people were using that instead of traditional mm-hmm. medicine. Um, and I feel as a, I feel as though the government is constantly attempting to make sure that you're spending the money that they're getting paid from, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Uh, there's, there's always going to be a bias in government, correct me if I'm wrong, toward the status quo. Yes. There's always going to be a bias toward about five years beyond what innovation in the free market is actually doing. I mean, we see that with things like autonomous vehicles or something. I mean, to pick a random example, there's always going to be a lag between what technology is able to accomplish and how government deals with it. Right. Uh, so the same thing is, is the case in, in, in healthcare, um, that there's always going to be sort of the push and pull. And if, so I actually talked about this on my show last week with, um, Ayla Brown, uh, with the music Moder- modernization act, music modernization act. Mm-hmm. Made that such a tongue twister. Since the <laughs> since since the MMA. Advent, right, the MMA. Since the advent of um Pandora, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, uh I think YouTube music is what it's called, I'm not hundred percent sure. Google, mm-hmm. Google. Um since the advent of all of that, there was not really a good way to pay these people. And mm-hmm. even oddly enough, I'm gonna quote Jason Moraz. Uh <laughs> Jason Moraz came out and he goes all of this happened too fast and there was no fix immediately, but now we have it. And while I hate the fact that that fix had to come from government, even though it was a unanimous decision by the house, which mm-hmm. is just weird. Like yeah. they did the right thing in figuring out a way that made all the streaming sites happy, that made the music producers happy, that made the songwriters happy, that made the artists happy. Mm-hmm. Like everybody was okay with this act and I'm not a musician, mm-hmm. so I don't really care that much, but, um, but you're right, like, the free market created something, the free market created something, and then the government had to catch up, because they, need, they needed to, they just needed to catch up, because the old laws, the old antiquated laws for paying the producers and paying the music writers, uh, yeah. was like pre-1965, or something like that. Yeah, well, I don't know, have you ever seen a dog walker with a bunch of dogs, and there's, you know, like a Great Dane and then a little Chihuahua running along. Right. Like, Chihuahua's government doing its best to keep up and everyone else is going on ahead. And that's, that's... Think of it. I love that analogy. That is a great analogy. 
Uh, I'm totally going to. And it tries, and sometimes it catches up. But generally speaking, there's always going to be a lag between innovation and, and regulation. Right, and you. I mean, you see that everywhere. Yeah. You see that across the board in any industry. Like yeah. a, a lot with like Kava bars and Kratom bars here in Florida. Um, they started taking off. They started becoming real popular. And then all of a sudden government was like, wait, maybe we need to regulate this. And thank you to people like uh, Senator, Senator Jeff Brandis, who was like, why? Awesome. I know. I love that guy. He, he's my Senator. He's my state Senator. Love yeah. that guy. Um, but yeah, he, uh, it's, he was like, why are we even talking about this? This isn't something we need to worry about. And that is how I feel most government officials should act on. That's the mindset you need to have. Should government be doing this? Right. Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think the other takeaway from that issue specifically, or you mentioned, you know, the medical marijuana is that it's an issue that Republicans with our dedication to free market and to smaller government did actually lead on. You know, if it weren't for the work of now Congressman Gates, it would not have advanced in Florida because again, it's, it's much less about the subject matter and the, and the, you know, whether it's something you personally do uh, and much more about realizing that compassion and, and allowing people to, the choice to do that didn't depend upon a political party and hey we can solve it if you got a yo if you got a problem the government won't solve it <laughs> check out the hook well Paul Ryan revolves it um, so um, were th- for for the election were there any surprises to you at all like I was Gillum kind of a little bit but I thought DeSantis was going to win. So I, I was surprised, uh, very pleasantly surprised, because uh, obviously the, while I'm suspicious of polls, the, the polls didn't look great going in. Um, it wasn't really a surprise, though, once the rest of the state was virtually tied and the panhandle, which, as you know, is in central time, was not counted. Right. Um, that's, I've grown up with that. You know, you never, never count until the panhandle is in and the panhandle handle is obviously very conservative and it's going to swing it to uh, to the right. Um, around the country, there were a couple. It was actually kind of surprising that Handel lost um, after the the great showdown between Ossoff two years ago and her, which talked about a guy who's probably kicking himself for not trying again. Right. Um, there were some cases like that, largely in, in suburban, traditionally Republican areas that are starting to move to the left, which again, it's an issue that small government should pay attention to. Yeah, uh, Claire McCaskill, I was not surprised she lost. People have been no. saying that one's been surprising, and I, I was not. I was not. I thought that made perfect sense. In a sense, the spread surprised me just a little bit, um, that it was that decisive. Same thing with, um, uh, I can't, that it was it was relatively decisive. Um, but, yeah, I, both of them were going to lose. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. People were talking about Mitt Romney's win being uh, surprising. That didn't shock me. No. Um, Arizona, I mean, it's still up in the air. I don't really, I, unless it's been decided since we started doing this. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen if it was during here. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, like, even that one wasn't all that shocking to me. Like, I saw that one going either way. Um, well, it's interesting. Um, I, I think political predictions are largely useless because they're really hopes and dreams, like, pretending to be predictions. Um, so I, my only prediction that I would make, I was like, everyone's, everyone's hot takes are going to be horrible or something like that. Uh, still true. Um, as I sit here making, you know, my own hot takes, but I think the, the big takeaway that I see is, um, everyone's seeing exactly what they want. Right. So you've got the president, um, saying that it's a great victory. 
um, that, and, and he's right that it was closer than it was expected, that there was not some sort of massive wave. And you've got people on the left saying, you know, this is a historic referendum that they're going to do what they've always meant to do. And it's going to be all these things through the house. Um, so in a sense, it was just close enough that everyone can kind of get a victory and, and go back to their echo chamber, I guess. Right. Um, uh, and of course, those of us who work in, in small government policy are going to be watching even even more closely because now is the time for some some really big uh, changes in the House. I um, yeah, obviously, I'm I'm certain that you do this too. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna say that I'm like you. Uh, last night, I was getting updates from multiple news sources while yep. while, while I was doing my show. Um, and you know, I was getting stuff from, you know, the Hill, I was getting stuff from, uh, the Huffington Post from Fox news, like just a wide range of sources because I like, mm-hmm. I like to read everything. So that way I get a feel of what everybody thinks. Um, and yeah, the, the left was saying it was a historic victory. The right was saying that the right, uh, the right one, um, like it just really depended on which source it was coming from. And you're right. Everybody saw what they wanted to see in last night's ep- uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In last night's episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Cause everybody was watching my show, obviously. Um, but yeah, everybody saw what they want to see in last night's election. Yeah. Um, yeah. Small, small little uh, sidebar. Did you see Trump and Acosta today? So I saw it on Facebook. I didn't watch it. I, I was looking at that on my feed right before I came up with you. <laughs> Watching uh, Jim Acosta on Twitter never disappoints. No, but he, uh, it's just yeah, some some high drama all the time. Oh man, and Trump and Jim Acosta arguing each other—that's yeah—that's always going to be worth it to me. That's what people go tune in for, right? Right. Like um, I, you know, again, you know, people on the left are going to see what they want to see, and, and people on the right are going to see what they want to see. Um, yeah, yeah that's. The, the drama is definitely increasing. I think that's the, that's the other takeaway. Right. And it definitely wouldn't surprise me if uh, after one of those uh, back and forth that Jim and the Don have, uh, if they go out and have beers afterwards and go, okay, how do we top this for next time? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I do think, I do worry in, in all seriousness, you know, I've, I've always been a Republican, conservative, often more conservative than establishment Republicans, whatever. Um, I do worry that we've lost the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. And I know that sounds trite, but, you know, there are such things as failed states around the world. And I don't think we in the U.S. really understand what's at stake when we can't get along with our friends and neighbors because we disagree with them. And we're seeing we're seeing more of that. And I, you know, with people getting attacked at rallies and things like that, it's been going on for a while. And that's that's problematic. That's you know, if we're not, if we're no longer able to discuss things with people who disagree with us uh, without writing them off as human beings, I think that's, that's just a, a fundamental problem. Right. Which, which you see so many times, like they're, politics are ruining friendships, ending them. Like friendships, uh, yeah, it's crazy. families are being ripped apart by, like, yeah. it's just, it's a sad time for all of that. Which, you know, yesterday I posted a picture with me and a friend of mine. He was wearing, uh, he was holding up a Gil- uh, Andrew Gillum yeah. sign and I was holding up a Ray Blackledge sign. And I said, just because we're on opposite sides doesn't mean we can't stay friends. Um, yeah. And I honestly believe that. Like, politics should not be as divisive as it appears to be at this moment. Um, no, it, it is. It very much is. I mean, you can plan on, on my Facebook feed or in real life, uh, you know, just, just the idea that if you, 
if you don't repudiate everything I disagree with and agree with everything I agree with, you're a fundamentally bad person. It's right. really, it's really problematic because right. it's not the way to move forward as a country. You know, and you see it on both sides. Like you, the people on the left, they call you a racist, a Nazi, a fascist, a whatever. Um, <laughs> racist, sexist, fascist, whatever. Um, and then on the right, you see people, you know, you're, they're calling people on the left, sometime on the right, uh, cucks, uh, statists. Uh, my dad's favorite is just moron. Um, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, no, that he's a moron. Uh, and... That sort of that sort of rhetoric isn't going to get people anywhere. And when I was out campaigning yesterday, I was talking to somebody, and uh, uh, I was talking to somebody, and I was like, you know, you, you may call me a you may call me a racist, a sexist, a fascist, whatever, but I'm not going to be somebody who's going to sit here and call you any of the derogatory terms that the right typically uses on the left. I'm not going to do it because somewhere in here we have some sort of common ground. Let's find that and just we can build from that and then try to understand each other better instead of just calling each other uh, names and trying to insult each other and just going with I hate you. Well, it's it's I think it's kind of happened suddenly and all at once, like calling each other names on Facebook is one thing. But when it comes to physical confrontations, that's a thing that's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, I've seen it, you know, with things that happen in Portland and things that where the, the Gillum girl was throwing coffee and all sorts of like incidents that range the scale of seriousness, I guess you could say, but it's, it's sort of become part of our psyche without realizing it. It's something we expect, uh, which is a problem. I mean, so I'm actually in, in New York city right now for a, a free market conference and I wanted to go There's to a the free market conference in New York city. Yes. Yes. It's the Atlas networks, uh, freedom dinner oh, nice. uh, together. Free market people from all over the world reminds you what, you know, what's actually at stake in places in this world. And so I, uh, I thought I'd work out in the, in the hotel gym and uh, grab some t-shirts and realized afterwards that I had packed my NRA t-shirt and my immediate thought was like, well, I can't wear that. Um, You know, I'm not in Pensacola anymore. Um, But then you go back and you think about it and it's like that, that really has become an accepted idea in, in a lot of ways that you're automatically going to get involved in some sort of physical confrontation uh, with, with publicly disagreeing and, we need to win, we need to win that back because that's not healthy for democracy. Right. When I I have a really bad track record of getting searched at airports. Like <laughs> TSA loves to search me. So one day uh, I was coming back from the Young Americans for Liberty conference and I was on my I, I was in the airport and I was wearing an NRA hat. And I didn't think about it when I put it on in the morning and I got to the airport and went, "Oh yep. crap." Here we go again, right? I was like, I'm certain that I'm going to get searched worse than normal today. And I didn't. Yeah. That was the one time I haven't been searched in like a year and a half. <laughs> I was I was prepared. Worked out, yeah. <laughs> I was so prepared. If I wear a Socialism Sucks shirt, I'm getting searched every yeah. time. I wear an NRA shirt, I get left alone. <laughs> um, so but It is. It's, uh, we got to get back from that, you know. We do. We really and, do. And one of the things I was telling her is uh, one of the greatest mistakes that we've made as a culture is that we don't talk about religion or politics out in public or at the dinner table. And we need to get back to talking about it because that is where actual civil discourse can happen. And when you learn how to do it with your family, you can learn how to do it with your friends. And when you can learn how to do it with your friends, you can learn how to do it with strangers. And we need to get back to that sort of discourse as opposed to, no, no, we just don't talk about that because we don't want any problems here. 
Yeah, ignoring something doesn't make it go away. No, it doesn't. You can say that to every medical issue I've ever had. Um, <laughs> Uh, so what do you have next on the future? Are you, are you going to plan on running? Are you thinking about running again? Or are we just kind of focusing on the uh, coalition to reduce spending or what? what well, is you know, they say never say never, but my only focus is trying to bring down the size of government. I don't, you know, it's getting involved in getting involved in politics is just an, it's an inherently exhausting thing, but I would still do it. Uh, you know, if I were two years ago and looking at, everything that I would go through, I would still say, do it again. Um, you know, right now I think we can, we can all make a difference in every place that we possibly can. And so right. that's, you know, even if we're the voices crying in the wilderness with the coalition to reduce spending and saying, Hey, you know, we still have $21 trillion debt. Um, I am, someone needs to. And so there's, there's just a huge need for people who, who stay the course uh, on small government, no matter what that exactly looks like. Um, no matter what happens. Right. Um, yeah, well, I, I appreciate you coming on. Is there anything you need to pitch? Is there anything you want to talk about? Anything last minute stuff? Website? Well, so I think I talked about it earlier, but our tool for tracking spending is more important now than ever with a bunch of people coming in who don't even claim to agree with it. You know, we've gone from empty promises to, to people promising big government. And so spending tracker.org will let you track it. Uh, it's the only site doing it. It's the only way to actually tell what people are doing with your money. Um, so that's, that's my main focus. And I think you should, you should sign on and get depressed and try to do something. <laughs> well, thank you. For that. I actually wrote that down to include in the show notes earlier. So awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so you're at the, uh, Atlas, Atlas network dinner in New York. You said, yes, I think, yes. I think Taylor Marie Anderson's there. Tell her I said, hi, uh, I will. Excellent. Tell her, tell her we miss her at the muddy wires of freedom. She was our editor in chief for like three weeks. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Very cool. and then she got the job at SFL and was like, I've got to go for a paying job. And we were like, well, I guess we get that <laughs> I have free market. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting paid, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. So tell her, I said, hi, thank you so much for coming on. I do appreciate it. Yeah. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed having you on. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah let me know anytime. I, uh, excellent. I, um, um, so yeah, I'm, I'll do the closeout and, uh, just hang out for just a minute and, uh, we can wrap it up afterwards. Um, awesome. thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, remember you can find all of the muddied waters stuff at facebook.com muddy waters of freedom. You can find us on Instagram at muddied waters of freedom. You can find us on Twitter at muddied underscore waters. You can find this episode and all other episodes at muddied waters of Make sure that you tune in to the uh, election special that we did on Tuesday. If you have four hours to kill. Um, now, uh, get back to writing and, uh, make the biggest difference you can. I am, I am, I am swinging from a seven-story window, throwing parties in a ten-by-seven cell, it's astounding the legs I'll go, to convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help, yeah, I am waving while I drown, don't bother swimming out to save me, I will only drag you down, I'll try to use your body as a life raft Cause if there's room enough for one There must be room enough for two I'll sail the good ship you into the sunset Sipping on savory water Till my liver turns blue
is broadcast in the evening news. I will be Hey. 